Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and my guest today is seven times world champion surfer Lane Beachley. The agenda is quite wide-ranging. The conversation covers everything from success to overcoming fear, progressive shifts for women's surfing and the launch of Lane's online portal, Awake Academy. Thank you for listening. Lane, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Angela. So, seven world titles, 29 major surfing event wins, 19 years on tour. I'd, I'd like to just start by asking a little bit more about the early years in your career um, as a girl growing up on, um, I believe it was Manly on Sydney's northern beaches. When did yes. you first see the possibility of a career in surfing? It's interesting. I started surfing when I was four. I started paddling out on my own by the time I was five. Wow! I decided I wanted to become a world. Champion. Yeah, I started. Mm. I decided I wanted to become a world champion when I was eight. I didn't know what. I started competing in surfing when I was about fourteen. I came dead last in all the events I competed in. Uh, I won my first event when I was fifteen, and so I saw surfing as the avenue for me to achieve my dream. So when you ask me, when did you see surfing as potentially becoming a career? Mm. It was a long time later <laughs> because there was so little money, so little support, uh, so much angst. Uh, <laughs> mm. Yeah, it wasn't, it really wasn't a career choice. It was a passion choice. So, to, so you're coming dead last at the age of 14 still? Yes, yeah. Okay. And then I joined the Pro Tour as an 18-year-old and came dead last in the first four events I competed in. Okay. All right. So a lot's changed <laughs> between 14 and 18. And then I also note yeah. that, I mean, you, you won your first world championship at 26 and you've said that you got better yeah. as you got older. Um, yeah. So I won my last one when I was 36. Yeah. So, so why, I mean, I'll take you back to what, what changed maybe between 14 and 18. Was there a turning point there that took you from... Uh, coming dead last. And I might also say that shows a lot of persistence to to keep that mm. up when, when you're not actually winning at that age. Mm. Yeah, and, and I was very fortunate. I grew up at a time when failure was okay. It was mm. safe to fail. It was considered to be a valuable lesson, whereas today there's a lot of unrealistic expectation on kids to appear and dominate and win. And mm. if they don't within the first couple of years, then get over it and get yourself a real job. Uh, it took me eight years to win a world title. So when I was 14... And I started competing just in club events and charity, you know, like um, little pro-am events. Um, as I said, I came dead last. And, and that was an indication for me that I needed to do things differently and I needed to work a little harder. It didn't define me. It didn't derail me. It just said, okay, Lane, what you're doing isn't right. I also knew that I was a good enough surfer to match it against the competition I was surfing with, but my headspace was wrong. I was really nervous and that made my board feel like it was a big block of cement. I just, I wasn't able to perform and that's where the frustration lay. It was the fact that I sabotaged it. I sabotaged my opportunity. And mm. then for the lessons I learned from that, I was then able to go to a high performance camp uh, up at Lennox Head that Surfing Australia put on. It's ironic that my first high performance camp by Surfing Australia, I've now become the chairperson of Surfing Australia okay. uh, and how that high performance program has shifted considerably. But that program helped me put structure and um, um, and just kind of processes together on how to enhance my competitive approach. And then that helped me win my my Scholastic regional titles and my state Scholastic titles. So I've had 
you know, highs and lows. I've had like crushing defeats and then wins and then crushing defeats and then wins. And it's the little wins along the way that help me maintain my motivation. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, um, I suspect that those amazing wins and highs feel that much better for the fact that you've experienced the, the, the lows along the way too. Um, it's interesting that when you ask that question, because I know a lot of us are in, so invested in struggle that that helps us almost make us believe that we deserve success when we finally achieve it. Which isn't necessarily and the case. Okay. Yep. No. Which won't necessarily no, happen. Not, <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. It's not necessarily the case, but it's the lessons or it's the story that we've subscribed to. So therefore, mm. when we do achieve success after having such crushing failures, then we celebrate that and go, yes, see, I've deserved this. And I learned, especially when I was competing for my seventh world title, that victory can be sweet without the depression or the dissatisfaction or the or the, the sadness of defeat, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and it's just a matter of how you reframe it or how you, you know, the story that you're subscribing to. Yes, those victories felt amazing, but you know what? My driving force to become the best surfer in the world was really what was driving me. So the losses, yes, they were devastating, but they weren't defining because I was on this relentless pursuit to become the most successful surfer in history. Mm. So I just saw those as stepping stones uh, and learning opportunities. But there were times when I was completely enveloped by them, completely suffocated by the sadness mm. and very um, – feeling really defined by it and uh, and that's when I had to rely on my dream team to help me through those places those mm. times. What you, you won six consecutive titles and then had a break mm. before winning your seventh in 2006 and mm. I've heard that you say and maybe this relates to part of what you're talking about now but you've said that you found some peace during that period that meant the seventh mm. win felt different. What can I ask you about that that change and, and that transformation, what happened during that period? Yes. So back in the year 2001, I had a really severe injury where a wave landed on the back of my neck. It was actually in the last wave of an event that I won in Tahiti. And it, it severed, well, it, it herniated a disc in my neck, which ended up severing my spinal cord, which I just chose to ignore. And... Five years later, after winning my sixth world title, I, I went into um, adrenal fatigue and complete exhaustion after flogging myself so hard. Um, mm. What happened was I, I had to take a break. My body was breaking down. And I, um, I came back, well, in that period between world title six and seven, I had other injuries, like I hurt my knee and you know other couple of injuries. Essentially, my body was just begging me, please, Lane, stop. Just allow me to heal. And so I went on this healing journey where I immersed myself in the opportunity to heal my body from the mm. inside out. And so I, you know, I did a lot of emotional therapy. I did biosync therapy. I did um, sauna key therapy. Like I did, I explored all the different styles of therapies I can possibly explore to help me heal my body. And when I and throughout that process, I realised that I had become so invested in struggle that I believed success had to be hard, and therefore I was making it so. And I had to detach from that because it was no longer sustainable for me to compete in that mindset. 
I had to actually detach from the fear and invest in love and trust in my ability to bring the best version of me to the water every day and detach from outcome and just focus on the joy of the process. And that's what I learned. Wow. Okay. How, I mean, I don't even know where you'd start in terms of learning all that. You've gone through, it sounds like that, that's taken a lot of work. Um, can I yes, ask you, I mean, you, you mentioned the word love there, which is, I mean, that's so interesting. Is it, can, can you expand a little bit more about that in terms of discovering love? Is it love for the sport um, or passion for the sport, love for yourself? What, what do you mean by that? All of the above. So I won seven world titles. I won six of them consecutively and I won five of them in the state of fear. And love is the opposite of fear. Number one and number seven, my world titles, were the ones won in love. And the mm. rest were in a state of fear. So wow. how that okay. looks mm. is I love the opportunity to compete. I love the opportunity to improve myself. I am disappointed that I lost today, but I love the fact that I get another chance to do it tomorrow. Mm. That's love. Fear is, shit, I'm running out of time. Oh, God, if I don't win today, then tomorrow I'm going to a new event and I'm not strong there and then so-and-so has a better opportunity to catch me in the ratings. And if I don't win, then I might lose my sponsor and everything can fall apart. Mm. Okay. That's fear. And so to, to experience the fear, so fear came up, it sounds like, from winning the first world title to the second world title. So because you've had that excess, the yeah, to, then there the are many consecutive ones <laughs> after that. And so, yeah. I mean, I guess that takes us back to that, that start of the conversation. So achieving that the success, so that actually led to more fear in a, in a way, yes. achieving that first success. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so once I achieved my first world title, then I became addicted to winning and then I set these unrealistic expectations of myself to continue to replicate myself, <laughs> replicate my performances and, and be better and better and better and uh, stay ahead and do more and be more and get more and <laughs> win more. And at what cost? Mm. Well, it was at the cost of my health, my well-being, my quality of relationships, my, you know, my friendships. It cost me a lot, but no one sees the shit you go through. Everyone just sees the outcome and go, oh, that was easy. Mm. Looks like that was fun. You go. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, yeah. And then to, I mean, uh, to, to live in that state of fear for, for those consecutive wins over year after year, it must have been mm. exhausting. And, uh, 100%. It was extremely exhausting. Mentally, physically and emotionally exhausting. And that's why I ended up with adrenal fatigue at the end of my sixth one because I finally sat back and went okay I'm enough now I've achieved my goal I'm the best in the world I'm the most successful surfer in history no one in the sporting in the Mm. history of surfing has ever won six consecutive world titles okay I'll just rest and um and then my body went whoa we're resting amazing okay I'm now going to really break down it's like when people get sick when they go on holiday Mm. it's because you've just been pushing and pushing and pushing and then when you when you basically say to your body, okay, I'm resting now, your body goes, okay, now I can let go. And that's when that says, that indicates that you're in a really unhealthy stress pattern mm. and that you're not managing your daily demands and that you're putting too much pressure on yourself and you're expecting too much of yourself and you're not listening to the symptoms and the signs that things aren't working. And that was me. Uh, just to stay with fear for a moment, um, I imagine – I mean, when I think about you and fear, I think about the physical fear that you must experience in terms of the waves mm-hmm. that you surf, in terms of the competition you face. 
Um, in terms of things like sexism and the sport that we've heard so much about and obviously so much progress has been made um, on that front but uh, and, and you would have been part of that and you absolutely have been part of that progress but maybe you didn't get to experience some of the benefits of that progress during your competitive years. But we'll get to that in a moment. Just back to the fear. I mean, can I ask what have been some of the most physically terrifying things that you have faced in the sport and can they – prepare you mentally for other sorts of fear that you experience? I feel that my big wave surfing exploits actually gave me a competitive advantage because it taught me to deal with enormous amounts of pressure, stay calm, focus on process, create really clear, um, uh, like I create a really clear vision about what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. It just, it brought the best out of me. So big wave surfing, even though it's it literally scared the shit out of me, but I also know that it was one of my competitive advantages. So they, some, some of the waves that I rode um, were extremely frightening. Uh, I rode 50-foot waves. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, <laughs> which was extremely scary. Um, I, I was actually more thinking of just the standard waves that you'd face in your usual competitions, oh. but that big wave surfing <laughs> is obviously something else. So at 50-foot, do yeah. you get towed in um, on a jet ski at that yeah. point? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. You're traveling around 60 kilometers an hour on your feet. So it's mm-hmm. very hard to paddle that far. So, yeah. Um, getting towed into 50 foot waves was extremely frightening. And I learned really valuable lessons around how to manage fear in those situations, such as getting really clear about what it is you want to achieve and then what the, what the three steps are that you're going to follow to make sure that you achieve that outcome. So, once again, recognizing the outcome, then detaching from it, and then focusing on what you need to do. And as humans, we're pretty simple. We remember things in threes. I can't remember four, but I can remember three. So, I mm. broke down what were the three things, the most important things today that I need to focus my attention on to ensure that I achieve the outcome, because the outcome will take care of itself if I follow this process. So, I broke it down into three things. And then I kept my attention on those three things. So whenever the ego would pipe up and say, oh, my God, no, don't. What are you doing? Don't fall. Don't screw it up. You're going to die. I Mm. would say I would, you know, just take a deep breath and and basically recite in my mind the three things, like hold on, wait, even, eyes up. That was my process, Uh, especially when you're moving at 50 kilometers an hour with 50 foot of wall of water chasing you down. So keep it simple um, and focus on your process. And then when fear comes up, recognize it, give fear a voice and go, yeah, I hear you, but this is what I choose to focus on right now. Mm-hmm. Is that, are they the same <laughs> principles that you apply to um, the just day-to-day fears that, that um, some of us are non-big waving people might yes. experience just that come up maybe in our careers, in our work, going into a meeting, presenting or something? Yeah, I wish I could simplify it that way. But yes, essentially, um, it is similar. It's a similar process. So something I share in my course is about digest, rest and recalibrate. So in moments where, you know, if if you've had a really bad experience and then you don't digest it and then take some time out from it, then you'll take that experience into the next experience. It's like having a really bad performance in a heat and losing and then taking the emotion that's tied to that into the next heat or into the next contest. And therefore, I'm sabotaging every future opportunity. So it's a matter of learning to let go. So there's different ways to address fear and there's different ways to deal with it. And so I don't just apply my big wave surfing to the rest of the fears that I have because different fears require different responses. Mm. But if we can normalize fear by recognizing that fear 
has, it needs a voice, but it doesn't need to maintain an ironclad power over us. We need to give it a voice, but then we need to say, now, okay, fear, I hear you. I respect that that's your opinion, but you're going in the back seat and you're staying there. Mm. Uh, and if you can't overcome it, if you can't get past it, then you've got to be able to share your fears with somebody else. So I find that, you know, when I have fears in the ocean, I deal with them differently to fears in business or fear in life. But essentially, I'm first recognizing the fact that I'm afraid mm. and then shining a light on the fear and then sharing my fear either you know, in my own way or with somebody or through journaling and then asking myself, okay, what am I going to do next? Mm. Okay, okay. I want to get to a couple more pieces of this in just a moment, just um, asking okay. a little bit more <laughs> about the launch of the Awake Academy, um, particularly the first course. But I, I want to take a step back and just ask you firstly, because it is something that we've covered quite a bit on Women's Agenda and that is around um, the, the gender equality that has happened in world surfing and equal pay. Can I mm. ask what were some of your experiences uh, on the world tour in terms of uh, trying to, you know, having – to compete with the men for, for the best waves. Um, what, what, what was that like? What did you experience then? The first words that come to mind was it was a shit show. Mm-hmm. And there's a great women's movie coming out and it had a working title called Sideshow, but it's now called Girls Can't Surf. And it's all about what we endured through the 80s and 90s, of how the women's surfing was, was so, uh, it was such a challenging environment to, to prosper in because, our male counterparts had no respect or regard for us. They, they, you know, basically told us, and you'll see if you get to see this film, a fascinating vision of guys who are world champions basically saying, yeah, there's great girl surfers out there, but they'll never surf as well as the guys. Mm-hmm. And we would have events cancelled because the industry wanted to invest the money in the men. When we would negotiate our contracts, if we were able to get a sponsor, they would say, listen, I mean, I was a six-time consecutive world champion earning a third of what the one-time men's world champion was Mm. earning, and that was because I was a woman. had nothing to do with commerciality, but they would suggest that perhaps, you know, Joel Parkinson, he sells more board shorts than you sell bikinis, so therefore he earns four times more than you do. Mm. Um, What else happened? We had, yeah, we had to actually lobby and fight for the opportunity to surf in decent conditions. We were sent out in substandard waves mm. and then wondered why, you know, our events were dropped. It was because you, surf, you put great surface in substandard waves, they were surf substandardly. So there was a lot of um, bullying, harassment, intimidation, threats, challenges, disrespect. And then on top of that, when you put women in an environment where they're devalued, um, they devalue themselves. So not only were we being harassed and intimidated by our male counterparts, then we started dragging each other down as well. Mm. Okay. Were these things happening as late as 2006 or were were things starting to improve by then? Things started to improve a little. But in 2006, I was still on the board of directors of the ASP and I was getting increasingly frustrated with the lack of equality and even consideration or discussion around equality for women surfing at the time. The men's tour, I think their prize money was in the two or $300,000 mark and the women's tour was uh, $60,000. <laughs> now, the way they used to, the mm, way they, just, yeah. they used to mm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, convince us that that was okay was because there was 44 men competing and only 18 girls competing. 
Mm. Um, I, I saw, we've seen all uh, these arguments, haven't we? Yeah, even yes, a couple of years yes, ago, they were still making these arguments. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, but where I was coming from was sitting on the board of directors going, this is unacceptable. What are you going to do about it? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> Suck it up, because without us, you wouldn't have a sewer. I basically said, well, screw you. If you're not going to invest in women's surfing, I'm going to. And so I'm the only athlete that has ever gone and got a license from the governing body to stage an event. And I staged the richest surfing event in the world for seven years. I, I upped the prize money to $100,000 US because I saw that as the bare minimum mm. that would cover the cost of any athlete that travels from anywhere around the world all the way to Australia and compete. Mm. And so the idea was to increase the prize money, increase the profile, keep this event away from the surf industry so I can generate um, a mainstream marketing presence. And on top of that, I identified the top eight or 12 juniors under 16-year-old girls and invited them to come and compete in the trials event to earn the right and the ability to then compete against the best surfers in the world. And the biggest mistake I made is I invited Steph Gilmore to the first event. She beat me in the final. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and now look at her. <laughs> and now look at her. And then, and then the following, uh, was it the following, no, then two years later I invited Tyler Wright and she yeah. won as a 14-year-old. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, these youngsters, they got no respect for the elders. In 2020, do you see surfing as a gender equal sport? No. What work needs to be done still? The industry has a lot of work to do to embrace women without sexualizing them or objectifying them and actually respecting the, the power, the grace, the beauty, the style, the femininity that women bring to the sport of surfing. Um, the governing body, I feel, is making leaps and bounds and you know taking very proactive steps in recognizing the value that women bring to the sport. Um, you know, the fact that I, that they announced pay equity, I never expected that to happen in my lifetime, wow. let alone yeah, in 2019. Yeah, it must have been such so a moment, yeah. Mm. It brought tears to my eyes, yeah. I must admit. I was extremely surprised and extremely grateful because all the crap that we went through, I'd hate to see that amount to nothing. I'm really grateful that it's amounted to something. Um, the sponsorship opportunities, the life after sport opportunities for women, Um the the way in which we're represented in the media, um, you know, you've got to be the, the beautiful girl or the pretty girl still. You know, they're still they still rely on looks a lot. Um, there's just I just feel like there's a long way to go for mm. for women surfing to be considered equal. And then there's still this mentality of there's still this hangover from the 80s that when it turns to shit, send the girls out. And that's mm. just totally unacceptable. So we need to see the male allies step up and really support women surfing. You know, the boys, they become quite blokey. They support each other. Oh, you know, we've got this. But we need to see the boys really step up and go, you know what? The girls deserve as much as we do. And I, I, I haven't seen too much evidence of that. Mm. But that's I'm not, I'm not on the front line of the pro tour these days. But I just – I want to see – women in executive positions um, in the surf industry and I want to see women in roles where they're elevating other women and, and even starting at the grassroots level as well. You know, I, just, I just want to see more equal representation across the board. Mm. Just final quick question on this topic, but do you think that women are getting more respect when they 
when women go out to their local beaches and, and get out there amongst the men um, in the surf. Have you have you seen a shift there? I know it might be hard for you to judge because I imagine you obviously get a lot of respect, but for, for, for <laughs> women who, who are going out and surfing, are they getting that respect in those beaches? I'm certainly seeing an increase in female participation in the sport, which is extremely rewarding. And for me, it's actually not about earning respect in the lineup. It's actually about women taking their place in the lineup, irrespective of whether they feel that respect or not. And I love seeing women band together and paddle out. Like we've got this um, surfing mums group down at Freshie here that, you know, they come together every week and mind each other's kids while they go and catch a few waves. Like it's just about the enjoyment. It's not about being you know, being given the entitlement or the respect to earn the mm. right to be out there. Everybody has the right to be in the water. Everyone has the right to enjoy the waves and the ocean. That's a free that's a free gift that we've all been given. So it's just a matter of embracing that and standing true in who you are and what you want to do. So what I want to impart on women, especially ones that go into the water who are learning, is understanding and respecting the natural etiquette and pecking order and um, and even your own skill set when you enter the environment. So, mm. uh, you know, I see a lot of women going in the water today who are learning and yet they'll paddle out right amongst the, the best surfers in the, in the water and expect just to get waves and be respected. It's like, well, no, that's not how it works. So there's a bit of give and take here and, and that comes with education and patience and knowledge and, and curiosity in asking the question. But, um, yeah, I, I want to see more women actually just take their place in the ocean and embrace each other and support each other. And I love seeing a whole bunch of girls in the water because it really, like, it, it totally it totally reduces the testosterone in the water and mm-hmm. elevates the estrogen and makes it a little more chilled and more fun and <laughs> mm. a, little more, yeah, a little more energetic. All right, awesome. Okay, so... Sorry, before you, can I ask what your been, what's been your experience of learning how to surf here? In <laughs> okay, I did mention this to Lane just before uh, we started recording. Um, so because I have recently moved closer to a beach and I did learn that and I have to say and I learned it with a, a bunch of I, I'm, I'm a mother of young boys and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to was because I want to be able to as my boys are learning to surf to be able to go out with them and feel confident and be able to teach them little bits that I know um I think my seven-year-old is already ahead of me in that regard but <laughs> that happens yeah, but that it also me. adds to the fact of you know family holidays just to be able to enjoy that activity with with my boys and one thing I have to say is that I've I've noticed that and I a few years ago I went and did a, 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 like a surf camp with other women and I was very intimidated going into that because I thought that I would be the oldest person there, um, that I would be the, the only kind of real beginner there and that it would just be I, – I just had this picture of who the other women would be who would be doing this and I was completely wrong. I was actually one of the youngest women there. The, the other women were had a little bit more experience than me but they'd all come to this for different reasons. And I think that's one of the things about any hobby that you do or anything that you're interested in learning to do or something creative that you might um, take up, like learning a musical instrument or something. It's You can think that, oh, because I didn't do that much as a child, I have no right to do this now or I'll never get to any kind of comfortable position in doing this now. And you can. And the, the best part of it is just to go and find other like-minded people who get passionate about it. That's what I found at this mm. camp. Most people were older than me and 
they also had all different reasons. A couple had just been recently divorced and they wanted to do something for themselves. There was, all, there was other people doing it that similar reasons for me that they, you know, their kids were learning to surf and they wanted to be able to surf with their kids. Um, but at, we all, it was having that common thing meant we only talked about surfing during that trip. We didn't talk about kids. We didn't talk about our jobs or anything else that we were doing. And that's what mm. I find is particularly great about whatever hobby it is, just to go out and go and pursue it. I'm a massive advocate of that. So, yeah, that, that's my yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, mm. That's beautiful. And it's a matter of just, yeah, embracing the opportunity and learning something new and stepping out of your comfort zone. We've all heard the classic cliche, but it's true. Exactly. So the yeah. Awake Academy, which I think would uh, – I've had a look at the website and I look at that and I think this is a bit of an opportunity to step out of a comfort zone as well. Um, you could describe totally. it as a no-bullshit transformational self-empowerment platform. Um, yep. So let's just talk about the launch of this right now, this week. It's Are You OK Day tomorrow. We're also, you know, obviously six months into this pandemic. Um, there's so mm. much uncertainty out there. Uh, Victor- those in Victoria mm. still in lockdown. What is can you can I ask about this moment and how this might fit with with the fears, the uncertainties that people are feeling right now? Yes, and it's a perfect time to be launching a course of this nature because it has been designed to help bring more certainty, confidence, and connection to human beings. Mm. The whole purpose of the academy was to cultivate connection, growth, and happiness. And to do that, we first need to own our truth. We need to hold up a mirror to our lives. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm subscribing to? Is it serving me or is it sabotaging me? And first we need to get awareness of how we feel about ourselves and our lives, identify our strengths, identify the things that we love to do. Then we need to align ourselves with who we truly are. And then we need to awaken ourselves to to step into who we truly are and live the life that we love. Mm. And the first, that first course, so... Own your truth. I, I mean, I, I love that saying in itself. Um, I have my own kind oh, of thoughts you. and feelings on it. But um, can I just ask you to expand sure. a little bit more on that? Yes. So own your truth is essentially helping people connect with their truth. And what I mean by that is when we're going through times of uncertainty and when we're going through times of challenge and setback, we can easily unravel and become defined by what's going on outside of us like and when there's a whole lot of uncertainty about our future and and we start to project into the future it increases levels of anxiety and fear and so the premise behind own your truth was to help people detach from the future or detach from the past and just get really present about who they are in this present moment because that detaches us from anxiety and fear and anger with own your truth it's I refer to it as a no bullshit seven round mm. course to unlock your internal GPS. It's to center you and who you truly are and what you truly love. Now, why do we want to do that? Well, the world right now needs more truth, needs more honesty, needs more confidence, connection, needs more happiness and joy and beauty. And no one else can bring that but you. Mm. Mm. <laughs> For you to step into who you truly are, no one can make you do that. The only, way, the only person that can give you permission to do that is you. And so now I'm just providing you with the platform to do that. Mm, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Lane. Um, we will share all the links. I encourage people to go and check it out. It is 
the perfect time. And as you're saying this, I'm also thinking of the word reset because we often talk about that in this pandemic period as well is that we are in this reset period and we don't necessarily think about that individually but as a whole in terms of our economy, in terms of how we're thinking about our environment and the world around us, we have this huge opportunity to reset and I think a lot of that starts with how we might reset ourselves as well. Yeah, and this is the perfect opportunity. I've actually referred to COVID as a triple E reset. It's an environmental, energetic, and economic reset. Wow, yes, okay. It's an opportunity for all of us to do that ourselves. I just wanted to say, um, as an ambassador for Are You Okay, if if anyone is having some serious challenges or mental health issues or are feeling a little bit numb or isolated, then now is your opportunity to reach out and ask for help. And our, we have a psychology partner with uh, Awake Academy called Mind Mirror, and they're mm. a, a psychological, um, a 21st century psychological support system where you can literally just get on the phone with the psychologist in the comfort of your own home and deal with the challenges. You don't have to go see someone; it's just you just and your first appointment's free. So check out My Mirror and um, and reach out to any form of of help because no one needs to go through this alone. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. If this episode did raise any issues for you or if you or someone you know needs any assistance, I just wanted to share some key helplines for you. The first one being Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. The next one is Lifeline on 13 11 14. And another one is Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. You can also check out all of their websites. Now, a reminder once again that the stories that we do cover on Women's Agenda you can find in some form on our website where you can also go and subscribe to our daily free newsletter that comes out just before lunchtime. The Women's Agenda podcast is produced by Agenda Media and you can also go and check out our new and second podcast called The Leadership Lessons. It's hosted by Kate Mills and it goes into some really deep and interesting territory examining how to lead for the critical decade ahead by speaking with uh, key female leaders. Go and check it out. Thank you for listening.